I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll follow up on the ITC battery case and discuss the shortage of semiconductors hurting auto manufacturers and the tech industry. Plus, we'll talk about new legislation in Congress to counter China. And the Trade Guys get into the future of environment and trade policies that U.S. here will have to consider. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Good morning, Trade Guys, and hello to the audience. We are back with a brand new episode, and I guess I should introduce myself as this is my podcast debut. My name is Jasmine, and I work with Bill in the CSIS Shulter program, and I'm stepping in today as a guest host. Really excited for today's episode because we have a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. Last week, we talked about a challenge Biden might face with the big battery case before the ITC. Lucky for him, SK Innovation and LG, the two South Korean companies involved, were able to reach a settlement for $1.8 billion, which the two of you brilliantly predicted. What does this settlement mean in the short term for battery production, and what does it mean in the long term for the debate over IP rights? Well, first, let's repeat that statement that's something that we brilliantly predicted. Every time you get one right, you know, you need to make the point. So, yes, we did. But if you think about it, it wasn't that hard a prediction. It was the only obvious outcome here that was win-win. In fact, I think new Senator Ossoff from Georgia made exactly that point after it was announced. This was really the only win-win outcome. It preserves jobs, it preserves battery production, and it settles a lot of messy litigation. So it was the right way out. It was also predictable that it would go down to the wire. Uh, these things always do. But I think in terms of impact, I mean, Scott probably know more about this than I do, but I think the impact is only positive. It'll allow them to go forward with battery production, and that in turn will facilitate the uh, conversion in this country to EVs and ultimately uh, autonomous vehicles. Right. Look, there was a substantial degree of government involvement, both at the International Trade Commission with the case itself and then with an appeal for a waiver or the opportunity for a waiver. But ultimately, this was a dispute over trade secrets between two private companies. And one of the differences in in my experience between business and politics is in business, sunk costs are irrelevant. You don't continue to rework issues over and over again. And future certainty is the ideal. That's what the boards of directors are looking for in companies. So if you can take an issue, even if you didn't win the issue in litigation or whatever negotiations you were in, a predictable future is what's in the interest of both companies. That's what they secured for themselves, not leaving it up to chance. It's why most litigation between corporate entities winds up finding a settlement you know, before you get to the judge. Not always, but uh, it's very different in politics. Politics issues, even you never lose permanently and you never win permanently. There's always issues come back pretty repeatedly. But in the case of business, this is one where particularly a trade secrets case, which is really probably about some employees who took information and went to the new company or something like that. We never got the the details. But uh, this is the kind of thing that that almost always settles. And uh, that's the reason I think both Bill and I expected it to. So good news all around. And the battery makers will be making batteries, which is what we want them to do instead of litigate. I have to comment that 30 years ago or so, I was interviewed by the, then the, the National Journal because I was changing jobs. And somebody asked me to sort of 
say something profound, which was a struggle. But in the end, I said, one of the nice things about trade as a profession is no problems are ever solved. They just keep coming back over and over and over again. Um, this one may be an exception. It, you know, it appears to be solved. And that's a good thing. Now, it may reappear, you know, if, if there's more poaching of IP. But uh, for the yeah. time being, I think this is a win-win outcome. To your point, uh, it, one of the reasons it was solved is it's not really a trade problem. It's an IP problem, you know, using trade law to find a solution. So in any case, uh, good news on all fronts. Great. And congrats to you guys on the correct prediction. Even though the battery issue seems to have been solved for now, we have new updates on semiconductor shortages. President Biden met with 19 CEOs to discuss the scarce supply of semiconductors on Monday, which have caused GM, Stellantis, and Ford to all shut down some of their plans. How should the Biden administration respond to this? I really want to hear from Scott on this because I think he knows more about it than I do. And I'm not sure I have a, have an answer. You know, I think we agreed in, on past shows that one of the dilemmas here is there's not a short-term answer to the supply problem. You can't open a fab plant tomorrow and start producing next week. Uh, these things take a long time. So the disconnect between supply and demand that we've encountered, and we've talked in the past about why that is so, there's not exactly a short-term solution. What that then has produced, you know, as the government tries to deal with it uh, anyway, is, you know, sort of allocation, and which is basically is another word for rationing. And you've got some industries coming in and saying, our needs are great. If you don't have enough chips, put us first in line for the ones that are there. And other industries are saying, I think, logically, uh, don't do that. Uh, let the market sort it out. Let's just focus on increasing supply across the board. One question I, I guess I have for Scott is, you know, it's not exactly a fungible product. You know, there are chips that are different. And the ones the automobile industry uses, for example, are basically larger and older than some of the things the other industries use. So it's not like building up one sector is going to automatically uh, short another one, I think. No, I think you're right, Bill. Look, it's, it's not a straightforward problem, and it doesn't have a straightforward solution as a consequence. First of all, let's create a little context. The semiconductor industry as a whole in the United States is, I think, second only to pharmaceuticals in their investments in capital equipment and in research and development. Most recent number I could find from the SIA's website is that uh, in 2019, the industry spent $71 billion in research and development and capital equipment in the United States. So cap investment is happening at a fairly high level. Research and development is very prominent in this industry. And when you look at that context, also recall we had a show, I think in March, where we talked about Intel made a $20 billion investment in two fabrication plants in Arizona, where they announced that. Uh, so look, there's plenty of capital going into this, and you have a demand problem, and there's not enough to, ships to go around. The market will take care of that in terms of creating supply, which is the Intel investment, which is the ongoing investment of the industry. Now, to get government involved, you've got to be pretty clear on exactly what is not being addressed by the industry and where government can actually make a difference. The one thing that gets brought up a lot is the so-called CHIP, CHIPS Act, that was uh, passed with the uh, National Defense uh, Authorization in, uh, at the end of uh, the last Congress. And what that is, is a matching program. It's actually a fairly fairly neutral idea. And if, if the federal government's get, invo get involved, 
Uh, they created the authority for it in the NDAA, but did not fund it. So you could fund that to say $50 billion or something like that. And it's a program that matches uh, uh, incentives from state and local governments uh, at the federal level. That would be a relatively neutral way to do it and probably preferable to the government getting involved in allocation of what supply does exist. And part of it is, as Bill points out, a chip is not a chip. Most of the investment is going on at the leading edge, which are the, the, the smallest, the most compact, and the fastest chips. And so it seems to me that the industry ought to be able to answer whether there is sufficient investment to meet expected demands. If not, incentivizing investment in something like the CHIPS Act may be a wise use of funds by the government. So let's get the investment we need. If there's R&D that's missing, there's a lot of, as I said, a lot of R&D going on in the industry. But if there's something that is ought to be uniquely done or something where the government can assist in a consortium effort on R&D that benefits the entire industry, that might be a wise investment as well. But rather than getting the government involved in the allocation of the existing chips, a clear forecast of what's available in the market ought to help the customers decide who wants the expensive, fast new chips and who can live with the old ones that new capacity is freeing up as part of the uh, supply network. So complicated problem, unless you really understand and clearly what problem the government can usefully solve, it's probably best to think of it a little bit harder. Right. And I think Biden is trying to support a lot of funding for semiconductor manufacturing and production domestically, especially in his $2 trillion infrastructure plan. Biden said that he has bipartisan support for the funding in the plan for semiconductors, but he's also facing pushback from Republicans who argue that the package is too expensive. Do you guys have any insight into whether this bill could pass or if there should be separate legislation with regards to boosting up production of semiconductors so that we don't have this problem? Look, it's always tough given how uh, the Congress works or doesn't work. But uh, one way to solve the problem is to deal with this separately. I mean, if it has bipartisan support, if it's a substantial amount of money, can can be much as was done by adding the CHIPS Act to the National Defense Authorization Bill, this could fly separately. There, There's plenty to argue about in a $2 trillion bill or however big the infrastructure project is these days. But if you can find, say, $100 billion of that $2 trillion that is non-controversial, then deal with it and move on and, and fight about the remaining money later. There'll be plenty to argue about. Switching gears a bit to China, there are new talks of legislation from the U.S. Senate that is designed to counter China's growing economic and geopolitical power. The newest bill being discussed is called the Strategic Competition Act of 2021, and it's part of a push by Leader Schumer to adopt a policy of strategic competition with China. It includes provisions like increases in military funding, stronger alliances with our partners, the defense of IP and export controls, and the expansion of CFIUS. What are the chances this bill passes? And do you guys have any thoughts about the bill in general? I mean, structurally, these things tend to pass as part of something bigger. So yes, I think it's going to uh, it's going to move along. And I noticed the Foreign Relations Committee, where it resides currently, postponed its its consideration of the bill that was scheduled for tomorrow. So it's it's slowed down a little bit, but I think it will, you know, it will move forward. But in the end, all or part of it ends up being, I think, incorporated, if, if not into the infrastructure bill, then into something else. I mean, that may be wrong, it, it, but it's not incorporated into the infrastructure bill. Um, 
which I think would be a good fit. There are other China bills moving as well. The Endless Frontier Act, which is focused on what we were just talking about, high-tech innovation and allocates a lot of money to uh, the semiconductor industry and, and elsewhere. Is There's a hearing on that today in the Senate Commerce Committee, and that one is moving along as well. That one's bipartisan, as is the one that, that Jasmine was just talking about, bipartisan. So that bodes well for it, the fact that there are parties on both sides. I mean, I, I think we've... Uh, we've said this before, China is an issue that both parties have been uh, supporting. I, I tempted to say it brings out the best in both parties. You could probably say it brings out the worst in both parties in the sense of, of you know, competing to see who can take the hardest line possible. But this is positive legislation for the most part. Uh, one particular provision in the bill that, that I think is troubling is it expands the uh, reach of CFIUS to cover uh, colleges and universities if they receive more than a million dollars in in gifts from Chinese sources. That, on its face, is kind of a, that's a serious expansion of CFIUS. CFIUS is about acquisitions. And it's about, you know, taking over private companies and thereby obtaining their technology, among other things. Being able to veto, effectively, I think, block Chinese uh, contributions to a university, presumably uh, for research, but maybe for support for students, I think is, is, is an overreach. And I'm worried about that. Yeah, that seems like a misuse, uh, unless you consider colleges and universities basically hedge funds with uh, the grant degrees, which is a bit of an exaggeration for most institutions. The theory is, I'm sure, you know, they're going to be doing research that the Chinese might get. We don't want them to have it. That's kind of a really broad brush. There's a lot of things that universities do uh, with Chinese funding that don't have security implications, particularly. And plus, you know, this has come up when Congress debated the expansion of the previous expansion of CFIUS. Uh, the reality is that that if there's going to be technology transfer, even if it's from a university, that's controlled already. And, uh, you know, the Chinese can give all the money they want, but the technology that's developed stays in the lab uh, unless it has a license to leave the country. I agree with Bill on that. And, and I would think that rather than trying to treat this with a program like CFIUS, instead look look at uh, what was created with the Baidole initiative that allowed commercialization of intellectual property by universities and look for ways to include disclosure within uh, that framework, which seems to be working, is beneficial to the universities. It allows non-practicing entities to commercialize the, the invention that happens, but do it in a way that, that secures the invention. So look, overall, it's a good thing to see Congress deliberate. And I would just observe that the last time Congress considered both CFIUS and export controls uh, in, the, in the statute, the acronym is FIRMA, it passed both House and Senate nearly unanimously. It was an overwhelmingly bipartisan project. And it occurred at a time when the Republicans and Democrats couldn't agree on what time of day it was or or whether to adjourn the committee meeting, but they managed to get together uh, and very, had a very broad uh, support in both houses of Congress for, uh, for that, that effort. Given that there seems to be a relatively strong potential that this bill passes, do you think there will be any retaliation from China that we can predict? I wouldn't use the word retaliation because I think aside from the CFIUS measure, it's not really a a sanction or a punishment is support for U.S. innovation. It's uh, doing exactly, in, in many ways, what the Chinese have already done with respect to their industries. It's it's supporting things here at home. I mean, the Chinese can be worried about that. They ought to be worried about it, but there's not a lot that they can do about it in, in the sense that you're talking about. 
Yeah, look, we have a First Amendment. They're, they're welcome to complain all they want. That's fine. But I think the United States should do what's in the United States' interest. And this seems to be in our interest. So, Great. Well, I'm sure many eyes will be on this legislation as it makes its way through Congress. And just to plug Bill's column on China from this week one more time, you can find it on CSIS's Jewel Chair website. And he talks about this more in depth there. Last topic for today, USTR Catherine Tai will be speaking uh, at the Center for American Progress tomorrow, where the conversation will focus heavily on an environmentally friendly trade agenda. It'll be interesting to see what she emphasizes in her speech, especially after recent news that Democrats on the House Ways and Means Committee have introduced a resolution to finish talks on the Environmental Goods Agreement. For the non-trade experts out there, including myself, could we get a brief recap of what the EGA is and why talks have stalled? Well, look, uh, the Environmental Goods Agreement uh, came out of uh, an initiative in APEC, APEC being the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or as we as we call it, four adjectives in search of a noun. Uh, but it's a it's a 21 nation talking shop basically for economic cooperation. And uh, during uh, the I think the Obama administration. Uh, around 2010 or 2011, some of the APEC economies decided to create a list of environmental goods that would receive preferential uh, treatment in the tariff schedule. So this happened a lot. It's quite common in trade policy to have certain goods subject to reciprocal improved treatment and that, and that would be lower tariffs. One of these agreements uh, that was agreed in the, in the GATT 94 on pharmaceuticals to reciprocally lower the tariffs on pharmaceuticals. It was called zero for zero uh, in, in trade parlance. And the idea was to take that model and identify a list of goods uh, that could be characterized as environmentally friendly. So components for solar panels, components for wind turbines, those kinds of things, and agree on that list. And then uh, agreed next to, on a reciprocal basis, uh, reduce the barriers to trade in those items, which would make them more efficiently available in lots of markets. Uh, so this started in 2011. Uh, it was formalized in Geneva as a WTO negotiation among uh, several parties, I think a dozen or so parties, in 2014. And uh, since then, we've been arguing about what's on the list. The bad news is we're still arguing about it. The good news is the list still exists. So, And the argument has been over uh, the list. I mean, I yeah. You know, they did the pharmaceutical agreement. They also did the information technology agreement. And tariff negotiations over the years have not been all that complicated because they're about numbers. I mean, the real issue is, is the universe of coverage, what's going to have its tariffs reduced and what won't. And the EGA negotiation ran into trouble um, at the end of uh, 2016, really, over precisely that issue, the, the Chinese on the one hand, uh, at the end of the day, proposed a list that was significantly smaller than the list that had been under discussion, uh, which concerned people. And then in particular, uh, however, the, uh, the Chinese wanted to add an element to the list, too, uh, and that was bicycles. And that ran into opposition from the European Union, which uh, has a bicycle industry and was worried that they would be swamped in Chinese uh, bicycles. This is the classic kind of... Um, basic protection that goes on every time there's a tariff negotiation. So things kind of ground to a halt. And it was significant also because um, it was a reminder that sometimes the uh, 
The motivating force for these things often is the United States. It's the United States that often ends up demonstrating leadership in these negotiations, kind of pushing all the, the other parties to agree. This was one, you know, where we had some equities, but not as many as some others. And uh, we're certainly interested up until the end of Obama's term in, in bringing it to a conclusion. And, uh, you know, the, the situation was sort of ripe for the, the U.S. to come in and try to pick up the pieces. Mm. Uh, but then Trump came in and they had no interest in doing so. Uh, and so it just, you know, it's it's uh, sat on the back burner for the last four years. But uh, it was a good idea. You know, it would facilitate the increased trade in green goods, basically. Uh, and I think there were a number of congressmen who just called recently for the U.S. to go back to the table on that, which I would think that we will. I imagine Catherine will say something about that uh, tomorrow. Um, I'd like to see it expanded to goods and services as well, which was not on the table before. But, you know, if, if you're going to restart, why don't you, you restart big? But it's, it's totally a good thing. And essentially, like a lot of other climate things, we wasted four years because it was not a priority for the uh, Trump administration. It's clearly a priority for Biden. And so uh, I think we get back to it. The, the question for Catherine, and the, you know, the broader issue is, what's she going to say tomorrow? And is, is she going to get uh, beyond generalities? I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to say we're going to have a pro, we're going to have a pro environment trade policy. But what does that mean? You know, and well, point one is we're going to try to bring the environmental goods agreement to a conclusion. Okay. That's good. What's point two? Uh, and what's point three and what's point four? There was just a conference this morning that I was listening in on thanks to, uh, our good friend, Wendy Cutler and the Asia Society Policy Institute on, uh, WTO and subsidies rules. And one of the questions that came up was, what about green subsidies? You know, the, the whole WTO jurisprudence is oriented towards getting rid of subsidies or allowing countries to take action against them if they're, if they're having a distortive effect. The built-in presumption is that subsidies are, um, are somehow bad and that, you know, countries ought to not be disadvantaged by other subsidies. Now comes along good subsidies. So the question is sort of, do we want to change the rules to permit subsidies because we like these? Uh, well, there are very similar subsidies in other areas, like for fossil fuels, that apparently we don't like. Good question. Not a clear answer. But it'd be interesting to see if she says anything about it. You know, for me, I, I think I'm very anxious to hear what, uh, what Ambassador Tai has to say. As a cautionary note, I think that there will be a lot of weight of expectations on the U.S. trade agenda and trade policy in general to help on the issue of climate change. And I think there's that potential. But the cautionary note for me is I look at the two, two tries that trade policy has made over the recent months or years, the most recent one being the environmental goods, goods agreement, uh, which has created maybe 10 years of debate, including APEC, uh, but not much resolved. Likewise, the fisheries uh, subsidies agreement, which we've talked about before is a, is a genuine problem of the commons. And you don't have to believe UN models about, uh, about global temperatures to understand that uh, technology, it now makes us capable of completely overfishing the entire ocean. And that's, that's a bad thing to do. That one's been going on since the 90s. Probably, I know it was on the agenda in 1999 in the, at the, the Seattle Ministerial. So, and that's gotten nowhere as well. So, so 
The key is, uh, if trade is going to become a constructive force in managing the issue of climate change, it's got to find a way to deliver something. And uh, well, I'll remain cautiously optimistic. As will I, Scott. It seems the environment will continue to be at the forefront of USTR and President Biden's agenda. And one other thing to be on the lookout for is Biden and Japanese Prime Minister uh, Suga will be meeting on Friday, where they will discuss cooperation on climate change, among a, no a number of many other issues. Both Japan and the U.S. have already committed to reducing carbon emissions to net zero by 2050, and they've also established the Japan-U.S. Strategic Energy Partnership to promote clean energy. So it'll definitely be interesting to see what comes out of that meeting and where the U.S. might be able to collaborate with our international partners and allies. Do you guys have a sense of what will be the most time-sensitive issue? I know Scott mentioned subsidies and we have the EGA. Are there any other big debates that might come up, like carbon border adjustment mechanisms or anything else along those lines? It's a little early for border adjustment measures, a discussion with Japan. I think we'll have that with the EU first, would be my guess. Yeah, look, Japan's a very important trading partner. They're still a top five trading partner of the United States, and so that deserves recognition and effort on the part of anybody involved in trade policy. And uh, frankly, has been a, a very... Uh, strong and reliable ally uh, in the last maybe decade or so. Uh, we, we've come to expect uh, Japan to actually step up and take the leadership. Uh, fascinating that usually Japan would be there at the end of negotiations, but often not take a, a leading role. And that changed, I think, when the United States chose not to complete uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that it was really, it was Japan who kept that coalition together and got it to a to a reasonable completion, uh, so uh, it's an interesting uh, role, and we'll see we'll see how the bilateral relationship evolves in this administration. But uh, probably too early for a major agreement on something like border adjustments. Right. Well, we'll definitely have a lot more to talk about on the issue in the near future, and I think that wraps up our conversation for today. Thanks to you both for the great insight. Thanks, Jasmine. Thank you. See you next week. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.